Well, this um, will um, conclude the series um, that we have been going through for some time as why it is a biblical mandate to assemble in person. When we uh, come together and worship, we're worshipping Yahweh, the God who lives above all powers. The one whose throne is above all principalities and above all authorities, whose name is above all names. And we gather to, to join the myriads and of myriads and thousands of thousands of living creatures to give glory and praise and thanks to Jesus Christ. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the author of life, the author of faith, the author of salvation, the good and great shepherd. And we're assembling together in order to declare that this lamb, the lamb of God that was slain, is worthy to receive power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessings because he purchased for God with his blood men from all tongues, all nations, and peoples. And by his death and resurrection, he established a new covenant. Now, what does it mean he established a new covenant? Well, part of it is that he put gladness into our souls when he changed our hearts. He kindled a new passion in us for him when he regenerated us. He placed in, in our hearts new desires, new purpose, new ambition that transcends all others. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.9, Therefore we, ha we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That is to say, that we strive earnestly with every fiber of our being to please Christ. And we do this freely, cheerfully, until Christ takes us home. Now, brothers, sisters, we, we can't boast as though this is our doings. This is not the work of man. This is the work of God in the heart of man. And this is the, the joy of our new birth that God has blessed us with. This is why we assemble no matter the cost. And it's interwoven in the fabric of our own hearts that Jesus is worthy of our collective worship no matter the price we pay. Now, for today, and I want to move quickly into the two last objections that were in the list that we ought to be able to answer. And I just want to say them very quickly, and then we unpack them after that. The first objection is this. Well, what if we assemble and the mainstream media finds out? Well, wouldn't we be bringing bad reproach to Christianity if that is the case, if that what would happen? Second objection. Or perhaps maybe more of a, a subtle objection. 
Well, I'll assemble. I get it. I'll keep coming, but I'll only keep it to the bare minimum. What do we say? What does the scripture say about this? Well, let's start with the first objection. Let's unpack it a little bit more. Well, the, the first objection basically says, hey, don't assemble because it's a bad witness for the watching world. I mean, to just appreciate the magnitude of these issues, think about it, all right? Let's just imagine for just a little bit. Let's say that we're, we're here, we're, we're assembling together to worship our God, and then all of a sudden we hear helicopters hovering ab above us. Right, police cars, you know, with their sirens on and they're rushing to the scene. Cameras are rolling. And now we're blacklisted as the criminals of the age. And we, we make it to the front cover of the national news. And we're standing there on, on a national stage of, of shame. Hmm? And we're called all kind of things and loving. Thugs, rebels. How is this a good witness? How? How in the world will this not bring dishonor to the word of God? And one might say, well, you know, I get it. I, I heard last week's message or two weeks ago, that message, last message. And um, I know we, we are not being unloving. We are loving when we assemble. But that's not going to help when the whole world are all convinced that we're evil people, that we're doing evil. So, don't assemble. You're being a bad witness to the world. Answer. Now that you know the objection, let's answer it biblically. Was Jesus a bad witness when the whole world cried out, crucify him? Did our Savior bring a bad reproach to Christianity when he was declared a thug by the watching world? When he was beaten and the crown of thorns were jammed on his head and was hung completely naked, by the way. And he was, that, that happened to him by the orders of the officials of his days. And so in other words, the officials, along with the rest of the multitudes of people that cried out, crucify him, crucify him, were all convinced that he was an evil man, a thug, a rebel. Did he bring a bad reproach to Christianity? Well, what about Paul, the apostle? When he said in 2 Timothy 2.9, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, evildoer. But the word of God is not in prison. In other words, for living out the gospel, Paul was thrown into a jail, not as a decent, good man, not, not as a, a good Christian, with his hair combed and iron shirt with a shaved beard. No. As a criminal, a riffraff, was he being a bad witness? Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's have a look at this interesting passage from verse 9. 1 Corinthians 4 from verse 9. 
And let's see how Paul painted that picture of how he and along with the rest of the apostles were treated and how the world looked upon them. And so starting from verse 9, Paul says, For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as men condemned to death. Why? Because we have become what? A spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Spectacle. Laughing stock. Mockery. To the world. They were as boring as clowns that don't know how to make people laugh or useless as banana peels or something. And he continues on in verse 10. And notice what he says about himself and the rest of the apostles. To the world, certainly not to Christ, not to Christians, but to the world, we are fools for Christ's sake. We are weak. We are without honor. In verse 11, to this present hour, we both, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. Their clothes were torn and smelly. People would just kick them around. They shut the doors. They shut slammed doors on their faces. They're not welcomed anywhere. When he says here that they were roughly treated, that they were homeless, they lived in street corners, they were unwanted, they were rejected for Jesus' sake. They were looked down upon as a downcast, outcast. And in verse 12, he still continues. And he says, we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. And verse 18, he says, when we are slandered, falsely accused as evildoers, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Why would we want to ever expect to be treated any differently? Are we better than they? Paul was not just considered as, a, as an evildoer, the scum of the world. Me, the rubbish of the world, the filth and the trash of the earth, for Jesus' sake. You, you wouldn't want to hug uh, the Apostle Paul. You might get your clothes dirty or something. And then drop to verse 16, Paul says, Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. Brothers, sisters, behold, I present to you the apostles that we highly regard, the men of faith that we look up to. For Jesus' sake, all were treated as evildoers. They were dishonored. They were looked down upon by the watching world. They were Everything bad. But they were not bad witnesses, were they? They were not. 
Do you want to know what it means to be a good witness? Biblically speaking, please turn to Matthew 5. This is what it means to be a good witness. This is what the apostles did in order for them to be good witnesses. Matthew 5 verse 14. We'll be going through passages and I will be asking you to turn from passage to passage. So um, keep your uh, fingers on your on the scripture because we're going to turn them around. Okay, we're going to have a look at different uh, passages to help affirm what we're saying. Uh, Matthew 5 verse 14. To be a good witness, you've got to be light to the world, right? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. The apostles were good witnesses. Why? Because they were light to the world. They were a gospel beacon. They were a lighthouse that, that pointed people to Christ. They were a candlelight that diffused this aroma of Christ everywhere they went. What does it mean to be a light to the world? Because in order to be good witnesses, we need to know what it means to be a light to the world, right? What does it mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. Two ways that we can be light to the world and therefore we can be good witnesses, irrespective of what man thinks. Number one, it is to preach the gospel of Christ. Let me tell you, you don't have to flick over, but I'll just let you know. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Easy. Unbelievers are blinded. They cannot see what? The light of the gospel of Christ. They can't see that. They don't understand it. They don't desire it. They don't get it. They don't see the light of the gospel of Christ. So Paul continues and he says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is our Lord. So he preaches the gospel of Christ. That is how he is the light to this world. To preach the gospel of Christ. Do we want to be light to the world? We preach the gospel. What is the gospel in a nutshell? This is what they preached. They proclaim the holiness of God that demands man to have perfect obedience. And the fallenness of man. That we are wretched, miserable sinners deserving God's wrath and under God's judgment. That you and I should have died in our sleep last night. And we did not deserve to get up this morning because of our sin. But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, he wrapped himself in flesh, he came in a form of man. Jesus died for the wicked, the godly for the ungodly. And he freely redeemed us, he freed us from the condemnation of the law. 
having rose again from the dead on the third day and seated at the right hand of the Father. And he now will accept every sinner that would put his trust in him. That's the gospel. And because now Jesus accepted us, forgave us and changed us, we are now willing to obey all his commands from our hearts, no matter the cost or how the world perceives us. You see, preach the gospel and you will be a light to the world. And when you're a light to the world, you will be a good, good witness. The second thing, if you want to be a good witness, you've got to obey God's commands. Not disobey God's commands, obey God's commands. And, and that's in, in the gospel of Matthew, where we're at, all right? We move on to verse 16. It says this, this is how you show your light to the world. Let your light shine. How? Before men in such a way that they may see what? Your good works. They need to see your good works. And then glorify your Father who is in heaven. And now, what good works is Jesus talking about? I'm not going to go in depth into of it. You can just simply, well, what do you do? Read the text. You read what he says in verse 17 and 18. It's the law of God that you obey, not the law of man, not the opinion of man, the law of God. You read that in verse 17 and 18 on your own, right? So do we want to be light to the world? We've got to obey God's commands, whether the world agree with it or not. What does that mean? It means that we've got to authenticate with our deeds, what we say, what we profess with our mouth. That Jesus Christ is the Lord of our hearts. That we truly obey him freely and cheerfully. And how do we do that? Well, Jesus says, jump. And we say, Jesus, how high? In such a way that when the world sees our dedication to him, they get a 3D view of what it means that we belong in life and in death to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We stick to Christ through thick and thin. And we boast to be his slaves and that he is our master. That in such a way that no other authority will ever drive a wedge between what Jesus commands and our obedience. Now, how do we do that? How do we, what, what do we really do when, 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 uh, when we're all over the news, when we get, when we get interviewed? What, what, how do we respond to that? Practically. Well, one thing, again, in the same chapter, in, in the Gospel of Matthew 5, verses, verses 11 and 12, look how we ought to respond. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you falsely, say all kinds of evil thing, evil against you because of me, right? Then he says in verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. Literally, exceedingly glad. Jump for joy. Give each other high fives. That's what Jesus is saying. When you are getting persecuted, for my name's sake, why is that Jesus? For your reward in heaven is great. You hit the jackpot. That's what Jesus is saying. So how do we respond? Rejoice. That's one. Second thing, how do we really respond? Well, according to what we said, 
Here's how we not to respond. We are not to defend ourselves, brothers and sisters. We do not turn it into an opportunity where we have a political debate with unbelievers, with the watching world. We don't do that. What do you do? You be light to them. You share the gospel with them. Jesus said, you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a what? Testimony to them. What does that look like practically, really practically? Well, I've got something here. You can, you can write it down if you like. You can, you can take it and condense it. You want to summarize it? You can. Yeah. Here is what you could do, practically speaking, in a way that we ought to respond to them in such a way that God would deem it to be that we are good witness. Here we go. You ready? You know, you guys are terrible people. What are you doing? You know, how come you guys are coming and assembling like this? You're very bad. You're bad, bad people. What do you do? Here's what you do. You say to them, the God of heaven is so merciful to me. He saved me. He saved me by pouring his wrath upon his son for me. And this same God commanded me to assemble. How can I not obey him cheerfully and freely? How can I not be grateful to him? He did not spare his son, but crushed Jesus for me in order to forgive my sins. And this Jesus rose again. He rose again. He's now seated at the right hand of the Father. And he promised he will come back to take me home. And he's doing all that because he loves me. How can I not obey him eagerly and joyfully, even if it would cost me health or wealth? Or reputation. Friend, do you think Christianity is just a fairy tale story? No. And you turn a gun at this man and you say to him, Friend, if there is anything my heart desires is for you too to trust Jesus with your life, to be saved. And then and thereafter to give your body and soul entirely to him and to follow him no matter the cost. So, first objection. Being bad witnesses? No. You obey Christ and you preach Christ and you are a good witness. Amen. Second objection. Fine, I get it. I get it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to assemble. But how often should I do that in a lot of the circumstances that we're, we're in? How much is too much? How little is too little? Now, before I move on and answer this question, I just want to put a disclaimer at the start. Um. We need to understand that each one has his own circumstances and difficulties in life that would impact the frequency of him assembling. It's not one size that fits all. It's not a brainer. We all know this, right? But the question is, is the scripture silent about this? And the answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. I believe the scripture has something to say about the principle that we all have to embrace, accept, 
and obey if we are to be obedient children in this life, in this generation. And in applying that principle in our lives, it may vary from one person to another, but the principle remains to be identical. It is an axiom that applies to all generations of all times. So that's my disclaimer. So let me unpack this question a little bit more. How often should we gather in a lot of these circumstances? Should we assemble less frequently? And some say, well, that's, I'm just exercising wisdom. I want to assemble less frequent in order, obviously, to minimize the risk of getting caught. And yet, at the same time, I have this opportunity to, to continue to, to assemble. Others would say, no, 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 no. We, we should um, give regard to what is going on and uh, we should give, should it, we shouldn't give regard to what is going on and we should continue to assemble the way we are with no uh, fear of man. Um, which way is the right way? What does the Bible say about this? Would you turn to Hebrews 10 verse 25? What I want to do is I want to lay down before you that what the scripture says is the principle that we all ought to work towards and apply in our lives. And let, let the word of God itself inform our minds and hearts of how we ought to answer this question. So Hebrews 10 and verses 25 onwards. Now, Hebrews 10 here. Obviously, we all know that Hebrews is, it's written to those that are Christians that are oppressed, persecuted Christians. And here the writer of Hebrews, he says this, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. So we know what that means. We've gone through this several times. Do not forsake your assembling, brethren, who are getting uh, persecuted and oppressed. It says, but, meaning the opposite end of the spectrum, meaning do not, not that, that you forsake your own assembling, but you've got to assemble now, but he continues on. He says, encouraging one another and, what does he say? All the more. Not less, more. And how much more? A little bit more? All the more. In Greek dictionary, the word, these two words, all the more, meaning pertaining, and I'm just reading the, English, the Greek dictionary, pertaining to a quantity considerably beyond the normal expectation. Another dictionary says so much, so great, so large. Why? As you see the day drawing near. What does that mean? As you see the day drawing near. Well, we all know this. We've gone through the end times. We understand that before Jesus coming back, there will be a rise in the love for wickedness. There will be an apostasy. There will be oppression against Christianity and that oppression will intensify as the day is drawing near. So the writer of Hebrews is saying this. He's saying, 
the more you get oppressed, you know that Jesus is coming back shortly. And when you know Jesus is coming back shortly, then assemble, encourage one another. All the more. Wait. Stack one step back. Let's have a little dialogue. But when, when, when I assemble more, the more I will be persecuted. Brothers, do, do we think that the writer of Hebrews doesn't know that? No, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. If I assemble all the more, I will suffer badly. Have a look at verse 32. It says this. Remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Say so he knows that. And I suffered great conflict. Not just conflict, great conflict of sufferings. Yet he commands him to assemble all the more. Oh, no, 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 no. But I might ruin my reputation. I might lose my life saving. I mean, surely this passage didn't have that in mind when it was written. Verse 33, look what they experienced. Partly being by being made what? A public spectacle through reproach. Just like Paul the Apostle and the rest of the Apostles. Public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. Here goes reputation out of the window. Continuing on, it says, partly by becoming sharers. With those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully what? The seizure of your property. Nothing worse to lose than to lose your own property, right? And you'll be homeless, right? Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession. And a lasting one. And mind you, just. While we're at it, pay close attention as why they had their homes been seized, been plundered. It was because they were sharers with those who were so treated. They identified with the prisoners. Meaning if you actually think about it carefully, they assembled with the prisoners, with the Christians. And that was the cause that led their houses to be plundered, to be taken out of them. But yet, he promises that they have a better possession and a lasting one. They weren't any different from ours. Their situation was perhaps even worse. Yet he commanded them to assemble what? All the more. Against all human wisdom, right? Hmm? Brothers, trials such as ours have a way to Expose our self-preservation that is hidden deep in our flesh. And once this self-preservation is now come up and it's floating in the surface, if we do not deal with it, it will destroy us. God loves us. He loves us so much. He cares more to remove our self-preservation that the pressure of this government has now exposed. He loves us and he cares that he wants to deal with that far more than he cares for us to have a two cents worth of earthly comfort. God has got a 
better agenda for us than, than what our self-ambition, self-plan, self-preservation whispering into our flesh. God's agenda for us is eternal. And it's going it's to lead to an eternal weight of glory. You better believe it, brothers and sisters. But you know what? It will not be fulfilled because you're getting oppressed. No. It's what we do when we are oppressed that counts. Right? What we do when we are oppressed that will count for eternity to come. So what should we do? Bible commands us to assemble and encourage one another all the more. Meaning, let your gatherings and fellowship be on the rise. Amp up your encouragement for one another. Press on the, the full throttle in your service for one another. Let your love for one another be on fire. At a time of war, when, when the battle is intensified, what kind of a foolish soldier who would hide in his little hole on his own and then would say, you know what, when the battle is over, I will regroup with my unit more often. Well, apart from being a coward because he doesn't want to defend his unit, to be all alone, to meet less often, when he runs out of ammos, it is a perfect recipe for his enemy to turn his hole into his own grave. No, brethren. Scripture tells us that Jesus did not die for us, then gave us a spirit of timidity, a spirit of fear, so to settle for the bare minimum obedience just because we're fearing man. No. Scripture tells us that he gave us a spirit of power, of love, and of, of sound mind. Therefore, we assemble as much as we can fit into our schedule. We get together all the more as we see the day of the Lord drawing near. That's one reason. I want to give you another reason. And if time permits, even third reason. And we finish for the day and for the series. So the first reason is because the scripture mandates it. The second reason. You ready? Because we're sinners. We are sinners. Please turn to Ezekiel 36. Something that we all overlook. Ezekiel 36. And we're looking at the new covenant now and the effect of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, you find in verses 25, 26, and 27 how the new covenant is panned out, that God takes away the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. He sprinkles clean water. He makes us clean. He gives us his spirit. Praise be to God for that new covenant. But I want you to have a look at verse 31, the effect of the new covenant. Then it starts off. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. 
Now, I love what he's about to say. Pay attention. It says, and you will what? Loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Strong words, right? Before we were saved, we, we thought that we were good people, right? Walk around with filthy garment, and we are so blinded to its filth. But when God regenerated us, He removed the scales off our eyes that blinded us from seeing ourselves in His true colors. That self-righteousness has been burnt up by the new covenant. Now we're disgusted with ourselves. We're appalled by our sins. Yes, even today in our flesh, there is sin that dwells. There's a sin that dwells in our flesh. But deep in the recess of our new hearts, we despise our lusts. We detest. Test our evil ways, and we are ashamed of what we have done to the Lord. Amen. And the more we draw nearer to Christ, the more we ought to grow sensitive to our sin. Self-righteousness is ugly. It elevates itself by condemning others. Self-righteousness divides churches. It's deceived and it says, I am right, everyone is wrong. That is what self-righteousness does. But brothers, healthy Christians, those who love the Lord Jesus, and they grow more and more ever nearer to the Lord Jesus. They identify themselves with the Apostle Paul when he sighed deeply and said in Romans 7.24, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death. Healthy Christians are those who mourn and weep over their sin frequently, regularly. They beat their chest before a holy God. They're not settled for just forgiveness of sins. They want healings. They cry out with David, the prophet, the, the, David in Psalm 51 and verse 7, when he said to God, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Meaning, Scrub me, Lord. Scrub me hard again and again. Cleanse me from this filth that I see in me. He was saved when he said that. What's in his mind? You want me to tell you what is in his mind? He knows that sin stains. And sin's scars just run deep into him. And Christians that identify with David, they know that they're no longer healthy people. And we see ourselves as sick people. 
broken people, always desperate for a need for healing. And the more we see the depth of our sickness, brothers and sisters, we are not just settling for even to go to the emergency department. No, we want to be in the ICU units. And we cry out to God, saying to God, God, if you don't plug me into your life support system, we are dead men. Brothers, this is not a newborn believer. This is a healthy believer that ought to have that in his heart. That's how a healthy Christian assesses himself. I know we don't find this in Kurong, do we? But that is what the scripture teaches, brothers. So what's the point of this? I mean, what's that? What does that have anything to do with why we're all together and how often we gather? Well, because of time. Just think about it, brothers. Jesus is our great physician, right? What is his hospital? What is his hospital? When Jesus is the head, then we are his body through whom the healing of Christ is administered to the brokenhearted. The church is the military base in which Jesus, our commander and chief, applies encouragement, healing upon the wounds of the soldiers. The church is the hospital in which the suffering patients find healing. And the more we believe that sin is running deep in our bodies, the more we recognize our need for the body of Christ to supply vitamins, minerals for us to be healed. We get all of that, mostly, fundamentally, in our gatherings. So, how often should we assemble? How often should we have fellowship? The self-righteous man, he'll just do the bare minimum, right? And that's enough for him, just ticking the box. So he doesn't feel guilty, so the other believers don't say, hey man, why are you not gathering as much as you should? Self-righteous man wants to tick the box. So he keeps it to the bare minimum. Why? Well, you see, in his mind, he thinks he's okay. So he doesn't believe he needs brethren to encourage him. He doesn't do anything wrong. So he doesn't need any brother to correct him. He doesn't have any problems in his life that he cannot resolve on his own. So he doesn't need anybody to help him or to give him advice. But in reality, if you really scan his flesh, if he's a believer, and you let the word of God begin to dissect what he's like from inside, you will discover that the real problem is that he's not broken over his sin, brothers. That he's not crushed under the weight of his flaws and failures. And so, 
He just keeps it to the bare minimum. Let it be known to all of us, to any brother in Christ, even outside of this gathering. We're not gathering because somehow we believe that we are Christian warriors. That somehow that we are heroes of faith. We're not gathering brothers because we think somehow that we are, that, that, that we are better than the other Christians who are not assembling. God forbid. We gather because we know that our sin, our own sin, severely wounded us. That we are bleeding soldiers. That we are very sick patients that are desperately needing Christ for healing. We are convinced that we are starving beggars. And we come here seeking Christ who is our bread of life. So how often should we fellowship and gather? All the more. The more our eyes are open to our weaknesses and flaws, the more we want the hand of Christ to touch us. And the more we want the mouth of Christ to speak truth to us. And the more we want the heart of Christ to love us. I submit to you, brothers and sisters, that this is the function of the church. Let me share with you one more reason, right? And I'll finish with that. One more reason. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. In fact, just chapter 3, last bit of chapter 3. The last reason is, I believe the most compelling. I wish I had more time to talk about it in depth, but, but it is in my heart. and I just have to share it. I can't just close the sermon here. Ephesians chapter 3. And pay attention to the very core of what our desire ought to be as Christians, what defines us. Ephesians chapter 3 and the very last bit of it in verses, in verses 18. We didn't go through just a big passage here, but let me just share my heart out here as we close, as we come to the end of the whole entire series. If there is anything, it's this bit. That compels me more than anything else. Why do we assemble and how often we assemble? It says this in verse 18. That we as Christians may be able to comprehend with all the saints. Together. With all the saints, right? What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. To know the love of Christ. Which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the minimum of God. Is that what it says? What does it say? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. All the fullness of God. Is this not our heart desire to know the love of Christ that we can never possibly comprehend? To be filled with all the fullness of God. True? How do we do that? How? What does the Bible say? What does Paul say? Even in this passage. Forget about the chapter 
the breakout, the breaking of the chapter, that's not inspired. We know that. So let's just, we'll, we'll continue in, in chapter four as he begins to spell it out for us. And I'm going to condense it and you can read it on your own. You can speak to me afterwards, but let's go now to verse 11. He's still following the, the same flow of thought. And in verse 11, he says this, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers are all the gifts. Everyone's got his own gift. We've spoken about this so many times. You have a gift. I have a gift. Um, and your, your brother in Christ has a gift. We all have gifts. What for? Now, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Great. What's the point of this? Well, to, to the building up of the body of Christ. Well, great. What's the point? Why do we have to get built up? Why? I mean, I don't care about getting built up. I just want to be filled, filled with the fullness of God. Right? Then what is this about getting built up? Well, he continues on. He says, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the... Now pay attention to this. He goes back again and he connects to what he said in verse 19 of the previous chapter. He says this, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to the mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Bear with me as I explain it very quickly to you. Your purpose as a true-born Christian, no matter, nothing else, nothing else matters, but to know the love of Christ, how much he loves me. And Paul says here, the process to get to that end. He gives brother the gift of encouragement. He gives another the gift of teaching. He gives a third a gift of counseling and a gift of this and a gift of that. Right? And when, when everybody's exercising his gift faithfully, properly, togetherly, You guys are going to grow. And when you grow, you will come to the point to know the fullness of Christ. The fullness of Christ's love for you. So that's the process. And that's the end. Verse 16. To sum it up. That's the final. I promise I won't say any more verses. Just verse 16. From whom, that's Jesus, the whole body being fitted and held together. The body. We know what the body is now, right? Fitted, held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. What is the cause? What, is the, what does it cause? It says this causes the growth of the body for, the, for building up of itself in love. When everybody functions faithfully the way God intended, everybody together will grow in knowing the love of Christ for us. How beautiful. How beautiful. Let's wrap it up. Objection one. Are we being bad witness when we assemble? No, obeying Jesus, obeying God for Jesus' sake is never a bad witness. It is always a good witness to obey God. Amen.
And when the mainstream media finds out and we want to continue to be a good witness, guess what? We will preach the gospel to them. That's what we do. Objection two, how often do we gather? Well, I don't know. How much do we see that our sin is repulsive in our sight? Or how much do we want to know the love of Christ for us? Or short answer, all the more. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, it is amazing how your scripture is absolutely clear at what direction we ought to take to get to know you, to be healed, to to love you and to know your love for us. We thank you, Lord. We thank you. You've given each one a gift. And in exercising his gift faithfully together, we will know the love of your son Jesus for us. Lord, we pray that we do not only obey your commands by assembling, Lord, we pray that we would not just obey your commands from our hearts when we assemble. Lord, put fire in our bones that as persecution rises, that we trample upon the fear of man and that we would assemble all the more. Father, your son, Jesus, when when he came, he said that he who is forgiven much will love much. Father, how can we love you much if we do not know that we are forgiven much? And how can we know that we are forgiven much if we do not believe that we sin much? Help us, Lord, to realize how much we sin so that we would know how much we have been forgiven. And in so doing, we would desire our healing from your hand, Lord, through the church. And finally and ultimately, that this would lead us, Lord, to love you more and more. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.